Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, good evening. We continue our series in the book of Acts, and we come to the middle portion. And chances are, if you remember anything from Acts chapter 2, it's going to be either the first portion or the last portion, the Pentecost or the story of the gathered people uh, devoting themselves to the word and to one another. And somehow this middle portion that was read to us just now feels like the flyover states. You know what I mean? Right? You read it, you hear it, but it doesn't really stick. Well, I'm going to say that this middle portion that was read to us just now is just as important as the Pentecost itself. It actually is part of the Pentecost. And I hope in our time together that we will understand that God delights in taking ordinary, everyday things 
to accomplish great things. And my prayer is that we, as God's people here at Grace Downtown, will see that, believe that, and commit ourselves to becoming instruments of God's grace to this city so that he would use us, an ordinary, mundane group of folks here in Washington, to accomplish what only he can. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for working already in this service. Spirit, thank you for coming and being with us. You are moving in our hearts even now, helping us to believe. And Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts now that we may see wonderful things that are hidden in your word, that we might see Christ, that we might encounter hope, that we would find joy in your word as we look into this passage together, we pray in Christ's name, amen. The history of Christianity in Korea is a short one. I'm going to not go over the entire history, but I'm going to give you a few highlights just so you get an idea of where things started and where things are as it stands today. Back in late 1500s, a Jesuit priest arrived in Korea to do ministry among the Japanese expats because at the time it was forbidden to witness to Koreans. And by the end of 1500s, the Christianity or Christian community in Korea remained a small persecuted group of folks. In mid-1800s, Robert Germain, a Protestant missionary, came to minister among those Japanese expats and few others who have heard about Jesus by distributing Bibles to them. And as a result of his work, there formed the first Presbyterian congregation. Fast forward to now. Korea is the home of 11 out of 12 largest Christian congregations in the world and has sent out more missionaries than any other countries except the United States. How does it go from basically nothing, a band of nobodies, a persecuted group of folks, to one of the largest Christian population, if you will. Well, many theologians and historians point to the event that took place in 1907, the Pyongyang Revival, as the event that set actually the church on fire. On January 1907, a missionary who then was martyred because of his faith, William Blair preached, and the Spirit came upon those who were gathered. And it started with one person praying out loud, followed by another, then another, and another. And before long, there was a concert of prayer, everyone in the room praying in unison as they were led by the Spirit of God. And this has now become known as the Korean prayer. Now, we're not the only ones that pray this, but it has become known as Korean prayer. And the missionary that was there that night describes the events that follows in this way. Many praying at once brought a vast harmony of sound and spirit. The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. It was not many but one, born of one spirit, lifted to one Father above, just as on the day of Pentecost. 
God came to us in Pyongyang that night with the sound of weeping. Man after man would rise, the missionary continues, confess his sin, break down and weep. My own cook cried to me across the room, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? That January night was the spark, and Pyongyang as a city, and really Korea as a nation, would never be the same again. Until the Korean War in 1950, Pyongyang was known as the Jerusalem of the East, an epicenter of all things Christianity. In fact, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, grew up in Pyongyang attending one of these missionary schools. When you read the account of the Pyongyang revival in 1907, it's easy to see the overlap between what happened then to the events that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Sure, there are supernatural events that took place, but it was the Spirit of God using ordinary things. Prayer, repentance, the preached word, to cut to the heart, to change lives, and to bring a movement that would, last, that would leave a large footprint, not only in the church, but in the communities nearby. And my prayer, as I said, is that we would not only hear the word preached and go through the book of Acts, celebrating what God did then, but we would long for this to be true of us today, that we would long for God to move in this way, because God is not yet done with us. He has not given up on this city, and he looks to us, the church, to commit ourselves to the word and prayer so that we can be that outpost, a light, that we would embody the gospel in such a compelling way so that the world out there would look at us, a group of folks that vote differently and think differently and wonder, how in the world are they together? And that it would give us an opportunity to share Christ. So let's look at two things here in Acts chapter 2 in the passage that we read and we're going to talk about two themes that Peter talks about in his sermon. First is Christ the victor. Christ the victor. Starting with verse 22, Peter zeroes in on one of the aspects of the atonement known as Christus victor, the victory of Christ. And Peter begins by explaining the meaning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It wasn't just doing cool things. It wasn't just performing miracles, but he was demonstrating what the kingdom of God is all about. His works, wonders, and signs, verse 22 says, all pointed to the kingdom reality. For example, when Jesus healed the sick, he was demonstrating to the world that in the kingdom of God there is no sickness. When he cast out a demon, he was telling the world that in the kingdom to come, there will be no enemies, no demons. And when he raised the dead, he declared to the world that in the kingdom of God, there is no death. And yet, you, Peter says, crucified and killed Jesus. Not once, but twice. He doubles down on this accusation. Later on in verse 36, he makes it very clear when he says, in fact, it was you, you killed this Jesus. What is Peter saying here? 
He's not speaking literally because not everyone there on that day was present when Jesus was handed over and crucified, but he's speaking categorically that we all have fallen short of the glory of God and therefore justly deserving of God's judgment. And we daily add to our cursed state evil thoughts and shameful deeds. Sin is a daily reality for all of us who live here on, on this side of heaven. And our solution to the problem of sin has been thin at best. We justify it, we ignore it, we compensate for it with good works, but the stain of sin cannot be removed. Guilt and shame linger. It eats away at our hearts, doesn't it? But God. Those are probably the two greatest words in the scripture. But God. He enters our mess and he refuses to leave us in our wretched state. And it began way back in Genesis chapter 3. The plan of God's redemption did not start with Jesus in the New Testament, but it began the moment we made a mess ourselves. God entered in with a promise that one day he will send a victor, a champion who will crush the head of the enemy the lawless men thought they got rid of a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, but God had other plans. Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.32, that God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. You see, it was God's decree that Christ, the Lamb of God, would become our substitute, that he would drink the cup of judgment and he would satisfy God's wrath. And that's exactly what God did on the cross. Jesus took our place. He faced God's judgment and appeased his wrath. And this is just half of the good news that Christians believe. Christians also believe that in exchange for our sins, God gives us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Again, Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God raised him up, verse 24 says, because it was impossible for him to be held by death. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis speaks of a deeper magic, a different incantation. And Lewis writes, the witch did not know that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead. The table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. You see, in God's economy, the wages of sin is death. And Christ, who had no sin of his own, therefore could not be held by death. It was a cosmic impossibility. And that's what Psalm 16 speaks to here. David is not talking about himself because he died and his tomb was nearby, but he speaks of a different king, a better king, one who would defeat all of his enemies, including death itself, one who would not be abandoned to Hades and the one who would see no corruption. And here's something that all of us, we must remember. 
If you claim to be a Christ follower and you find yourself from time to time in difficult and hard places, remember this. Yes, we all have days when evil seems to have triumphed. But the ark of God's redemption guarantees that his promise and his steadfast love towards us win. And maybe that's where you are today, feeling the pangs of death, as it were. You're experiencing injustice, pain, suffering, evil, and you see death creeping all around you. I want you to know that that is not the end. It might feel like you're losing in the meantime, but eventually he wins. And that's what the empty tomb speaks to. And even in our pain, even in our sorrow, we find hope and redemption. And that's the promise that we can hold on to. The victory of Christ refers to Christ having not only fought, but triumphing over his enemies and the powers of the world that held us down. And now, as a victor, he sits at the right hand of God and reigns as king. But how do we know that Christ won? How can we be sure that Christ defeated the enemy? Well, the proof of Jesus' victory is right here in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people. Pentecost bears witness to the claim that Christ is the exalted victor. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And as a result of the outpouring of the Spirit, we're told that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. The first fruit, the church, was birthed. As many of you know, Pentecost, or the Feast of the Weeks, is one of the three main festivals that every Jewish man had to attend. It was required. And I don't think they had issues with RSVP because it was an amazing party. It was the place you wanted to be. It was actually one of those dates that you circled on the calendar because you knew that you would be with all your best friends, feasting and drinking and celebrating the good work God has done. And that's what they did. They gathered and they celebrated. And part of the celebration tradition was a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 5 through 11. And I'm not going to read the entire passage, but the text basically briefly recounts Israel's history from Abraham to Exodus and ends with these words in verses 10 and 11. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite, and the sojourner who is among you. Jesus would have said these words on this Pentecost as he sat at the right hand of the Father, seeing the first fruit, the church, 
he would have laid the fruit, the gifts at the Father's feet in worship of the good work that he has done. And I'm certain, as the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus, as he was faced with his imminent death and the cross, looked past the pain and suffering and the shame that he would have to endure and saw this very moment where he would praise God for the good works that he has done, and he rejoiced. He celebrated. And that's what Pentecost is, a day of celebration, day of remembering the goodness of God. And we, as God's people, continue to celebrate Pentecost because we are not only the continuing fruit of this good work that God has done and is doing, but we become the very instruments by which God accomplishes this very good work here in this city. In that sense, in this season, in the season of new ministry year, as we think about what it means to be the family of God, to come together to love one another and to embrace the city with all its beauty and brokenness, we have the privilege of becoming the instrument of God's grace to see Pentecost happen again as we celebrate God and his goodness and the good work that he is doing in this city through us. And I pray that we will commit ourselves to that and that we would labor hard for the kingdom, that we would put our hands to the plow and not look back as we commit to his name and his glory. Second, let's look at Christ the Savior. Verse 37 says, many were cut to the heart. They heard Peter's sermon and they were convicted. They were convicted of their sin. They were convicted of Christ the Savior and their need for him. And so they asked, brothers, what shall we do? According to John 16, this is the sign of the Spirit's work, that he would convict the world of sin. And Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized. There are three different Greek words for repent in the New Testament, and they all emphasize different aspects of what is biblical repentance. First, the word repentance means to turn from, to turn from your old way of life. And it speaks to the general direction of your life. You were living a certain way, but now that you've encountered Christ in the gospel, you can no longer live as if Christ is not real and the gospel is not true, and therefore you turn and you live differently. Second is from 2 Corinthians 7, 8, where the word translates as regret and speaks to the emotional aspect of repentance. Think of the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, okay? Mourning over sin, grieving over our brokenness. Third is here in Acts chapter 2, where the word translates as change of mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2 says. A pastor I know once said that we respond to every message we hear. Did you know this? We respond to every message we hear, either in repentance, change of life, grieving over the brokenness we see in and around us, or renewing our, our ways. We either repent or we harden our hearts to the voice of God. 
It's been said that the same sun that melts ice hardens the clay. How about you? How do you respond to God's word? To walk away thinking, that was pretty good. That was a funny illustration. That one good point was, okay, that was all right. It's to do a disservice to the word of God. I will say to you all that every time the word of God is preached, we must respond with repentance. Why? Because perfection is promised to us in glory. And all of us here, we live in between what the theologians refer to as the already and the not yet. There is brokenness within and without And sin, as we said, is a daily lived experience. And therefore, when we hear the word, we must respond with repentance to affirm its truthfulness and to basically say, God, I want to not only be forgiven of that, but I want to grow into that reality. I want that truth to be real of me. I want to see glimpses of that in my own heart my life, and here in this community, in this city. And that's why we must repent every time we hear the word of God. See, repentance is not a one-and-done thing, but it's a lifestyle. Spiritual maturity is not becoming sinless. Spiritual maturity is growing in our sensitivity to sin and being quick to repent. And that's what 1 John is all about. Marks of genuine believer are those who grow in love and repentance. And I pray that as God's people, that we would be quick to examine our hearts, to affirm the truth of God's word and repent. And when we confess our sins, he is indeed faithful and just. He will forgive us. He will meet us in our lowly state, and he will always extend mercy to us. And that's a promise we have in 1 John 1.9. But Christ does more than simply forgive us of our sins. To say that Christ is our Savior means, yes, that he forgives our sins, but he delivers us from the power of sin that once held us bondage. And more and more, We can live into the truth that we are more than conquerors because of Christ. And this sounds so strange when all we do is simply manage sin better, doesn't it? We sort of learn to cohabitate with sin, sort of silence that nagging voice, ignore it. This idea of becoming more than conquerors seems so foreign. Sure, that's for some people, and certainly when kingdom of God comes, But come on, really? But that's what the Bible says. This is what Christ came to save us from, to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to break the power of sin. Yes, one day when he returns, he will remove the presence of sin from our hearts. But in the meantime, that's what he saves us from. His grace is not just, hey, you're okay, But his grace is, don't get too comfortable with sin because it leads to death. And he empowers us to overcome.
when you read the New Testament, especially the Pauline epistles, and really just meditate on who you are, who we are now in Christ because of his finished work, it is amazing to think that we are more than conquerors. What would would that look like if we really believe that and live that out? How different would you and I be in the ways that we communicate and relate with our friends and loved ones, in the ways that we see people in this city? What does it mean to be patient and persevere, to be long-suffering in our love? What would it look like for us to wrap that towel around our waist to wash the feet of those who disagree with us. Sounds radical, doesn't it? But in Christ, we are more than conquerors, and we can do this. I don't know about you, but I long for this community to be that community. Trust me, being right is important. But I want us to be humble, servants, Loving, caring, even to those in the margins. That we would run after and chase those, never, those that would never set foot in this building. Because that's what God does with us. Psalm 23, his chesed love, his kindness and mercy pursue us. And what does that mean in the New Testament when we then, the church, is the embodiment of God's grace, mercy, and kindness? To believe the truth of who we really are and to live into that. I mean, that's how we become a beautiful and compelling community. Look, Satan cannot defeat us, at least not the one we represent, but he can distract us. And so often we get caught up in these squabbles. We get distracted from what's truly important. And when Satan has us in that place, then he won. We got to understand the schemes of the enemy got to call it out. And can I say, I know it sounds so weird to say this, but we got to do better. Because we are not we once were. But we are a new community. More than conquerors. With the spirit of God in us. And we're called daily to put on Christ. To take off the old boy, how beautiful this community can look. And we're going to hear about that next week, okay? what that community can look like. But in the meantime, let's dream together, shall we? Repentance is symbolized in baptism. I think we're going to wrap up with this thought here. As Presbyterians, and that's our denomination, for those of you who didn't know, We believe the sacrament of baptism to be an outward sign and seal of the inward spiritual reality, which is faith. 
Okay? That's why we get baptized. Okay? We make that profession to say, I believe in Jesus. I place my faith in him. And as a sign of that, I'm going to put water, the sign on me. That's what we do. But this promise of forgiveness of sin and new life into the people of God is not only for those who profess that, but as we read right here in verse 39, it's for those who make that confession and their children. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children. And that's why we baptize infants. The water cannot save. But it's a sign that God puts on us long before we can say the words, Lord, save me. God puts a sign of affection to say, I know you and I love you and I've provided you resources, this community, to do everything they can and I can to raise you into this reality called the baptismal vow. That's why we put that sign on our children. And here in verse 39, Peter speaks really to the scope of this promise. And he began, I mean, look, it didn't take much for him to understand that baptism is for you and for your children because this is what they did in the Old Testament. It goes way back to Genesis where the sign was given to Abraham and all his sons and male descendants in his household. But here's something that Peter did not anticipate. When he was preaching the sermon and got to verse 39 and said these words, okay? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone uh, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He thought, yeah. I mean, the Jews do live in different parts of the world. In fact, here at the very first Pentecost, we got a lot of folks a lot of Jews, God-fearing Jews from different parts of the world gathered. And surely the promise is for them too. Little did he know Acts chapter 10 was coming. Should I just end there and just close the prayer? <laughs> In Acts chapter 10, God sends Peter to Macedonia. And there he preaches to a man named Cornelius, a centurion, a Gentile, and his family. And Peter is amazed at what God does. In the same manner that the Spirit was poured on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, and they too begin to speak in tongues. Peter is shocked, and he begins to understand, oh, the promise is not just for Israel only, as we read in Isaiah 40. But the promise is for those that are even outside. All those who will call upon the Lord. God's arm is too short. His, his power is too great to save Israel only. He intends on gathering for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I hope as we think about being instruments of God's blessing and experiencing Pentecost here in this church and this city, that we would have an eye toward this promise, the scope of this promise, that all people would not only feel welcomed, 
but they would be engrafted in, received, embraced, loved, as we seek to become who we'll one day be when Jesus returns. Let's pray together.